All right, well, let's uh, go ahead and get started here. Uh, Dad is in Montana. He went deer hunting for a couple days, so uh, I got asked to fill in. Well, he asked me last Saturday, but I didn't find out till Monday that I was actually doing this. And the reason I tell you that is because when you find out who we're talking about, you're probably going to chuckle a little bit. Um, because last week, we're, we went through the, the Hall of Fame. What? Are you talking about Noah? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about uh, Enoch. Oh. Talked about Enoch and Abel. Um, and so we are going to be talking. I'm just going to kind of keep going through Hebrews. Um, pick off where we left off last week. Before I do that, Dad doesn't spend a lot of time on this, but since I'm a guest speaker, I get to do what I want. And I'd like to at least spend just a couple seconds here um, plugging the Patreon for Creation Instruction. Um, I know that we're getting a lot of this for free when we show up on, on Saturdays, but if you guys are blessed by the ministry at all, uh, I know he would appreciate it if you would go there and subscribe. And there's plenty of other things on there in addition to what he uh, speaks on Saturday. So with that, we will get started. Um, we are going to be talking about Noah. And I tell you what, after this week, I am... I thought going into it, I was like, yes! I get to brag about my namesake a little bit. And by the time I got to the end of this, I was like, I don't deserve to be named after this man whatsoever. So it was um, just a great week to be able to study Noah. She good? Just kidding. <laughs> no people were no Um, but I do want to kind of preface this with the fact that <laughs> we're going to be jumping all over the place. This is probably the hardest sermon to prepare for or message because we're going to be looking at Enoch. We're going to be looking at the Apocrypha in 2nd Estrus. We're going to be looking at some Jewish um, commentaries in the Midrash. We're going to be all over the place. There's a rhyme and reason to it, but it uh, just kind of ended up that way. So first off, if you guys are, are interested at all in learning about the end times, which you should be because I believe we're living in it, you're going to want to study Noah. Uh, there are some great resources in the Bible. If you want to read Revelation, obviously that's the first one that we go to to learn about what the end times are going to be like. There's some great um, Matthew 24 up here is a great chapter. Joel, Daniel, there's some great, in fact, the, the Bible almost always is pointing toward the end times in some form. But there's only one place where we have actually seen the earth destroyed. That has only happened one time, and that was in Noah. And so it's a very important story in the Bible to go and study, because if we understand what, what the days were like in the days of Noah, then we have a much clearer picture for what it's going to look like when the Son of Man is coming back. Uh, I should read that verse. <laughs> but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So just emphasizing that if we're looking for the Son of Man, and we're trying to study that, then we need to be looking at what those days of Noah were like. So starting off here in Hebrew 11.7, just picking up from last week, uh, it says, By faith Noah being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So the first thing I want to point out here is that Noah had absolutely no reason to believe that there was a flood coming. Um, if you listen to Dad's pre-flood world at all, you'll know that there wasn't even rain at this point. It's not like there was many floods happening or that it had been raining for four days and Noah was like, well, I should maybe listen to him because uh, it's starting to look pretty bad out there. There was not a single shred of evidence, no precedent, that God was going to do this. So Noah moved without sight. He had nothing but the word of God to rely on in this, in this case. And I know that for myself, usually if I'm called to do something or asked to do something, there, we always ask for a sign, right? Uh, if I, I'll do this, but there's going to have to be some kind of sign that shows me what I'm supposed to do. There was no precedent of this. All he had was the word of the Lord, and that was enough for Noah. Um, if we want more respect for him, I, I mentioned that I've gained a lot of respect for him. Uh, we have to go look at what kind of life it was like and what he was actually going through when Noah was here on earth. So to do that, we're going to go to Genesis in chapter 6, verse 5. 
Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Have you guys ever had a thought like that? I know that I have in my life where a sin, that it, it's like the first thing I think about when I wake up, and it's the last thing I think about when I go down to bed. And I'm not to this point where my heart is evil continually. But if you think about the opposite of that, being a godly man, the person that Noah was, you are consumed by God, where your thoughts are on God continually. It's the first thing you think about when you wake up. You think about him all day. Every aspect of your being thinks about God. Um, but this generation was the opposite of that. They were given to depravity, total depravity, completely, to the point where they didn't have a good thought. They had covetousness, idolatry, harlotry, drinking, murder. All of these things were celebrated to a point where this was a generation where they didn't blush at sin. There was nothing um, that embarrassed them at that point. And I think about that today in our society. If we're talking about where we're at living in the days of Noah, there are very, very few sins that I can think of that anybody would blush at in the secular world. If you were to go to Hollywood right now and mention any, any sin out there, um, I can think of maybe one or two that they would kind of scoff at. Otherwise, they'd be trying to find a way to legalize it the next day for you. Genesis 6:13. as we move on, And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with a flood. This word filled with violence uh, sticks out here for a very important reason, and that's the fact that anytime you see evil being filled to completion, there is judgment immediately afterwards. Um, and what does this look like? Well, let me go back on that, uh, the being filled with violence. Uh, reference to that would be in Revelation 17. We see um, the, uh, I forget what her name is, the, the Lady of Babylon, she was basically the mother of all harlots, is holding a bowl. And that bowl is filled with all the evils, all of the sins of the world. And right after that, that you see this woman in Babylon with this bowl is when she's completely wiped out. In uh, God tells the Amorites, I believe it's in Exodus, but I'm not positive on that, that they had not reached their full measure, that the Amorites were not about to be wiped out because the cup was not full. They had not reached that point. So what does it look like to be completely filled with violence, to have um, evil thoughts continuously? We're going to go to the book of Enoch. And for those of you not familiar with the book of Enoch, it is not part of canon scripture, but it is provide some great history and some great insight into what the days of Noah were like. It's kind of a prequel to what those days were. Um, some great history in there. So in Enoch 7.5, it says, And they began to sin against birds and beasts and reptiles and fish, and to devour one another's flesh and drink the blood. Then the earth laid accusation against the lawless one. So Enoch gives us a little bit more detail as to what was happening at that time. And I'm not going to address the birds, the beasts, the reptiles, and a fish. That could be an entirely separate sermon as to what they were doing. But what I do want to focus on is this aspect that they were devouring one another's flesh and drinking the blood. What is the second thing that God tells them that God commands Noah to do after he gets off the ark? Because the first one is to multiply, yep, multiply the earth. The second one is do not drink the blood of animals. And that's because that's exactly what these people were doing. Not just the blood of animals, but they were drinking the blood of humans at this point. And you think, well, we're not at that point. That's, we've got a ways to go. But I can show you plenty of articles. I'm just going to put a few up here. Plenty of articles about people talking about drinking blood. Um, if you watch that Belly of the Beast movie, you can find in cultism and Satanism all the time people drinking blood. And they believe that it gives them a special spiritual connection. And I agree with them 100%, but it's the wrong spirit that they're dealing with. Uh, that was the people who drink blood. In 2002 in Miami, um, police shot a man who was eating another person's face. Uh, this was actually in the National Geographic. So these aren't just some fringe news media. This was National Geographic. Cannibalism, the ultimate taboo, is surprisingly common. So when these things start getting into politics, when they start getting into academia, uh, they're not just fringe things. And I don't think that it's safe for us to just assume that none of this is taking place. 
um, because it is pretty mainstream. When you look at the founder of Wikipedia tweeting about cannibalism and drinking human blood. Not just in uh, mainstream media, but also in academia and climate change, where this article was posted in the Washington Times in 2019, speaking about scientists saying that human, eating humans could save the earth and prevent climate change. So we have uh, eating the blood. We have celebration of murder taking place. Um, I know you guys, we can sh I could show you examples for hours about people talking about how having an abortion is the greatest thing that they ever did. In Newsweek magazine, I had an abortion 15 years ago today, and it's still the best decision I ever made. Uh, this was on the New York Times bestselling list, Shout Your Abortion. People magazine, 27 celebrities who have shared their abortion stories to help women feel less alone. And trust me, they were not regretful of those decisions um, at all. So those things are not necessarily new. They tend to be around for a long time. But there is something that is new and has actually been a fairly recent trend. And that is the issue of homosexuality. In Enoch 8.2 it says, Impiety increased, fornication multiplied, and they transgressed and corrupted all their ways. The word multiplied here is really interesting because it's not that fornication gets worse or that it, you know, progressively, it's, it's multiplication. It is a quickening of these things actually taking place to the point where it is, these transgressions and this corruption is taking place so fast um, that you just can't keep up. And in mentioning that, the idea that there's something new here that we have not had for a long time, uh, I want to show you this from the Midrash, where Rabbi Huna said in the name of Rabbi Yosef, this is his commentary on Genesis, and again, this is not scripture, but this is Jewish commentary, and they were a lot closer to the situation than you or I were, so I do put some value in this, and they said, according to them, that the generation of the flood was wiped out, or was not wiped out until they wrote Gemafsiot, which is the marriage documents, for the union of a man to a male, or to an animal. So homosexuality has been around forever, right? I mean, it, sin, it's a, an aspect of sin, and I don't believe that it's ever not been around. But there is something that is very recent, and that is the marriage certificates of homosexuality. Um, because we see here that the first country that recognized a legal gay marriage was the Netherlands in 2000. And when I saw this for the first time, I, I was shocked because it feels like way longer than five years. Do you know that in the United States, uh, gay marriage has only been legal for five years? 2015. So in 20 years, that's a very short time. Again, showing you how fast this takes place. We've had over 30 countries that have legalized marriage and now recognize that in the legal courts. Genesis 6.13, we're going to go back there. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. What you have to understand is the earth cannot put up with this type of sin. The earth is literally screaming out for judgment. And God has to, if he's a righteous God, he has to come and judge the earth. Um, going back to Hebrews here, one thing that we want to point out is this fact that Noah was divinely warned of these things not yet seen. God is always going to warn his people because he's a just God and knows that judgment is coming. He is always going to warn his people. He loves you and desires that no man perish. So he, he says that he's going to come with his prophets. Uh, I believe it's Amos 3.7 where he says that uh, he will never inflict judgment without first coming with the prophets. So you basically have two decisions. When God warns you, he says, this is what's going to happen. God said to Noah, this is what I'm going to this is what I'm going to do and Noah can either believe that and act on it in obedience or trust his eyes and say I, I don't see a flood coming uh, and move on you have two choices to make and we are warned about what's to come here today as well so that warning that Noah got we are getting throughout scripture many examples of that this is just one in Isaiah 13:9 says behold the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. So, 
Let me ask you this here. How many of you believe that the day of the Lord is coming, that this wrath, this fierce anger is coming, and that he's going to destroy sinners? How many of you believe that? Has that changed your life, knowing that, believing that, that we are in the end times and that we are close? Has that changed your life? Because this radically changed Noah's life to the point where he was interceding for these people. He was building an ark, but as we'll see here, Noah had a heart for these people, just like we should have heart for our neighbors. We should be pleading with our family, with our friends that aren't saved, that listen, the time is coming. You know, and I always think about that guy sitting on the, the city street with a sign that says the end is near, and they call him crazy. But if we truly believe that this is happening, would you not give everything you possibly could to save somebody? Your prayer life is going to be on fire because you, you don't know when this last day is coming. Uh, you're going to be in the Word, and you're not going to be making plans for this earth. Uh, I'm guilty of this, and I and knew that I was even going to ask this question. But how many, how many of us are going home tonight, going to bed with a plan for what we're going to do tomorrow? And that's okay, but how many of us are thinking about what our plan is for tomorrow in the spiritual realm? Hopefully we're all going to church, so there's at least some spiritual aspect added into that. But what are you thinking about your plan is for tomorrow, for how you're going to get closer to God, or how you're going to prepare for when you're going to meet your maker. Uh, I don't do that. But if we are supposed to be living and with our minds set on things above, we're not making plans for this earth. And when we get to Abraham, you're going to see the faith that it takes to not have anything, no possessions here on earth that you cling to. Second uh, Peter 3.10 knew that this was coming as well. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? So Peter tells us what we need to be doing. We need to act in holy conduct and godliness. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, Beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. I'm glad I was right there. Amos 3.7, the Lord does nothing without first communicating it through his prophet. We have been warned. If you've got this Bible right here, you've been warned. You have no excuse for saying that, I, well, I didn't know this was coming and I wasn't prepared. No excuse. Uh, and I hope if you've been coming to this Bible study for a couple weeks, then you definitely don't have an excuse. A few things I want to point out in this verse that um, we saw it twice, and there was one in that last one in verse 12. This idea that they, you should be looking forward to these things. When you're telling people, I, I've heard sermons, countless sermons over the last couple weeks, from pastors saying, coming out and refuting that we're not in the end times. Don't worry, you guys. I know that, I know that everyone's in a tizzy, but you don't have to worry. It's not going to happen. Why would we be doing that? Should we not as Christians be longing for this day to come? I don't know if it's going to be tomorrow. I don't know if it's going to be a year or three years or five years, but should we not be longing for that day to come? We're excited for it. Not only that, we're commanded to live that way since yeah. the death of Christ. Yeah, yep. Not longing for anything on this earth, but longing to be with him since the moment he went up. Yeah, good point. Uh, this without, without spot and blameless is interesting because that is exactly how Noah is described in Genesis. It said he was blameless and walked faithfully with God. Going back to Hebrews here, we're going to hit this verse just several times as we kind of pick it apart. Um, but when we get to this portion that he prepared an ark, that true faith is action. It's not conceptual. It's something that does require obedience and action from us. Um, because if you have faith, you will move. Faith without works is dead. Noah's life and action brought this testimony against the world. In uh, Here where it says, by which he condemned the world. So this very aspect that 
the way that Noah lived his life and what he was doing was a condemnation to the world, that people around him hated him for it. As he's building this ark and telling them that they need to turn from their ways, they absolutely hated him. But he did not hide his light under a bushel. No. He kept his light shining and was able to the, was using his walk to be a testimony to people around him, whether, whether they liked it or not. And that's what really kind of hit me this week was, I want people to know, if I have a conversation with them and it's five minutes, I want them to know that I'm a Christian. And I do a horrible job at that. But how can I be like Noah where just the way that I live my life and just the way that I'm walking, and it sounds weird, but is a condemnation to the rest of the world, not to the people in the world, but to the rest of the world, that they look at what I'm doing as a Christian, not me, but what Christ is doing through me, and that they feel bad about themselves and that they want to do something and want to love the Lord more. Um, I just desire that so much, and I fail to get that to everybody that I meet, that I'm a Christian, and to share that love of Christ with them. And that's exactly what Noah did. Yeah, but like you said, they hated him for it. And that's, I think, what holds us back. Yeah. They're going to, it's not like, oh, I want to be like you. It's like, I'm mad at you, or I hate you, or you're nothing. Yeah. You're, you know, well, why do you, who do you think you are? Yeah. Yeah, that's what we get. <laughs> and that's why, yeah, that's why I say I am not even privileged to be named after a man like this who was willing to have the entire world hate him. I mean, it was him and his family, and that was it. And nobody else believed him, and I'm sure they all called him crazy. I, I think I would be depressed, honestly. Yeah, yeah, I'd be right. depressed if I knew everybody hated me. I think he condemned them as well. And I'll show a verse here that kind of says that. Um, I don't think it's just that he was off doing his own thing and was hoping that people would ask him questions. Right. I'm pretty sure he was out on the street saying, repent, repent, the time is coming, there's a flood coming. Yeah. 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 Uh, was what? I'm going to get to that. Hold on. <laughs> Wouldn't you be if you wiped out all the... <laughs> the whole world hates you. Well, you saw them all be You're all sinners. 2 Peter 2.5. Can you imagine living through watching the rest of the world die? I know. Did you skip that last slide? Did I miss it? Oh, I did. Thank you for pointing that out. I would have skipped right over that. <laughs> so we're going to go to 2 Esdras. This is a part of the Apocrypha. Uh, and I believe Dad's talked about that a little bit. Again, not part of Scripture, uh, although it was part of Scripture back in Jesus' day. Uh, a lot to glean from this. Esdras is, uh, second Esdras is basically second Ezra. It reads a lot like Revelation. Um, so if you have any interest in Revelation, I'll want to study the end times. It's a great book to look into. And what's happening here is that Ezra is being shown a vision from an angel, kind of just like John was in Revelation. And this is what he says. Nevertheless, as concerning the tokens, behold, the day shall come that they which dwell upon earth shall be seized in great terror and the way of truth shall be hidden and the land shall be barren of faith. So when I hear seized in great terror, the first thing that I thought of was how in Revelation, because I was making this connection, uh, in Revelation it says that the, there's going to be such a terror among the people that are not sealed by God, that they're going to cry out that the rocks will cover them and hide their face because of this great terror that's happening. Uh, and the truth shall be hidden. When I see that, I was thinking, man, mainstream media, right? Coronavirus, there's so much truth hidden. But one of the things that I've been, and this is off topic from a Bible standpoint, everybody keeps complaining about the mainstream media, how we can't get truth and nobody's going to be, you know, sharing truth and it's impossible to find the truth. That's not true at all. Just because the mainstream media is not sharing something doesn't mean that you can't find the truth. It's that we've gotten to the point where we are lazy and don't want to find that truth. And if we're not willing to seek out that truth, um, it will be hidden from us. And I believe this is something that is a spirit of the Antichrist to hide that truth. And if we're not willing to go and seek that truth, and it's going to get harder I say it's, it's possible to do now, but it will get harder to find truth. 
you need to get in your word and find where that true truth comes from because the Antichrist is going to do everything he can to hide that from you. So the land was barren of faith. We see the same thing in Luke 18, 8, when the Son of Man comes back. I tell you, he will see, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? I hope he does. <laughs> but it doesn't sound very uh, hopeful there. Going back to Enoch uh, 106, verse 18. And this is talking about the birth of Noah, which is a crazy story in and of itself. But giving some genealogy and again explaining what was happening at this time. And now make known to thy son Lamech that he who has been born is in truth his son. And call his name Noah, for he shall be left to you. And he and his son shall be saved from the destruction, which shall come upon the earth on account of all the sin and all unrighteousness, which shall be consummated on the earth in his days. So the name Noah actually means rest or comfort, which I always found kind of ironic because, like you said, he wiped out the entire population. But what he was doing was bringing that consummation back to the earth. It was the earth that needed that rest and that comfort. Um, but moving on in 19, And after that there shall be still more unrighteousness than that which was first consummated on the earth. So what is he saying there? He's saying that what happened the first time in the flood, it's going to be way worse the second time. So if you guys think that uh, it's going to be just like the days of Noah, that's, that's not right. It's actually going to be way worse than it was in the days of Noah. And one thing I can think of that's going to be worse, um, just a theory, but the, uh, this idea of gender fluidity is something that we have not seen before, uh, at least as far as I could see, where you can be whatever you want to be at all. So on this idea that things are going to be worse than how they were uh, back then in 2 Timothy, but evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. This multiplication of deception taking place. Matthew 24, 12. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. So it's not going to get better. The Bible is telling us that it's going to be worse. And that's important because as believers in our faith, this is the greatest time you possibly have to grow in your faith and be firm because it's not going to get any easier. It's going to get worse. And if you can't stand firm on your faith now, if you can't speak up and tell people that you're a Christian because you're afraid about being ridiculed, it's not getting any easier at all. It is only going to get worse. The good news is this is as bad as it gets. Once we get up into heaven, it's only up, uphill from there. For people on earth... This is as good as it gets, uh, and it only gets worse for them. So, again, we need to be excited for this. Come, Lord Jesus. Going back to Ezra, I told you we were going to be jumping around all over the place. That's why it was hard to <laughs> plan for this. But uh, now, therefore, we're given some, some idea of what we're supposed to do. It says, Now, therefore, set thine house in order. And reprove thy people. Comfort such of them as be in trouble, and now renounce corruption. One thing I've been thinking about with the, the craziness of this world is this idea of preparing, and maybe nothing happens, but if it does, you're going to have a lot of non believers and a lot of believers that are curled up in the corner of their room and don't know what to do. Even if they have faith in God, they're still going to be terrified, they're going to be afraid. It's going to take some strong people of faith that have their house in order to be able to go and comfort these people. And that's what the world is going to need when this takes place. They're going to need Christians to stand up and be a comfort, be a light to those people when they're going to need it most. Set thine house in order. For yet greater evils than those which thou hast seen happen shall be done hereafter. For look how much the world shall be weaker through age so much more shall evils increase upon them that dwell therein. For the time is fled far away, and leasing is hard at hand. For now hasteth the vision to come, which thou hast seen. So he's saying there, let this happen pretty quick. Let's, let's go. We're excited for this. Going back to Genesis. Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. 
For after seven more days I will cause it to rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. Um, I believe this was mentioned a couple Bible studies ago, but it took even an action of faith to, to go into that ark, to build that ark, not knowing what's happening at all. God did not tell him before this, oh, it's, it's going to be fine, it's going to rain for 40 days, I'm going to set you on a mountain, I'm going to provide all these things for you. So he is, he's coming into this ark, he is making, making incredible actions of faith. And I, I'm convicted by that because it does not require a lot of me right now to say that I have faith in Jesus Christ. Um, there have been a couple things I can point to in my life where it's maybe been a challenge, but I've never gotten to a point where, where God just said, Noah, this is going to happen and I need you to drop everything you're doing. People are going to hate you. Just trust me. I've never been put in that situation. That's why this is just incredible to me that he had that kind of faith to come into the ark, not knowing what was going to happen. But when he got into that ark, Noah was hidden from that judgment. He was on the boat for seven days. He was not removed from the judgment completely. And that's important because when we, if you're looking at Revelation and we're looking at the end times, this is one of the reasons I don't believe in pre-trib rapture. I don't believe that we are taken out of judgment and that we're just whisked away in the sky. I think we're there for judgment, but we are protected. God calls us to come in. He's going to be our hoopah. He's our ark. He covers us. He protects us and keeps us safe. So they sat in the ark for seven days before it even rained. Yeah. With all the animals and all the food, and that had to been removed. I'm sure day three, he was just like, What's that smell? This is, <laughs> yeah. Um, going back to Isaiah, though, this is, and I keep making this flip-flop that doesn't coincide, but it does because I'm showing you what's happening then is going to happen now. And Isaiah, this is for us. Go, my people, enter your rooms and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until his wrath has passed by. Well, hopefully that's all the easier it is. <laughs> yeah. So God separated Noah from the evilness of that world. Again, he did not take him out, but he has him protected. In Revelation 9.3, um, Oh, and I should, should point out there that he was in there for seven days. And that number is, is significant. I think you guys all know that, why the number seven is important. But this chapter in Revelation 9 is actually talking about the seven trumpets. This is the fifth trumpet where God separates the godly from the ungodly. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their theft. So there is coming a point where they're not going to repent, but they're going to know that God is here. Uh, all these science explanations of climate change and all these things that are happening, there's going to get to a point where they're going to acknowledge that this is what's happening, that there's a God up there that's doing it, but I don't, I don't believe him at all. They will harden their hearts to him and not replant, repent. Um, another example of this and a number, another example of the number seven is Exodus in the ten plagues. And really they should be counted as three plagues and seven plagues. Because the first of the three plagues in Egypt involved the Israelites. They were included in what happened. They were not removed from that judgment. But the last seven plagues, they weren't affected by those. God separated the Israelites from the Egyptians and they were not under the plagues the last seven plagues. So just to conclude here with Noah, um, it's pretty much summed up in the first two words of this verse, by faith. That's what it is. That's all it is. It's, it's very simple. Um, if you want to be like Noah, have faith. Because Noah had faith, he did not compromise. Because he had faith, he built an ark. Because he had faith, he condemned the world. And because of 
his faith, he saved his family. And because of that, he was an heir of righteousness. That's one of those titles I want to get at some point. I'm not there, but I want to get up there and hear God tell me that I'm an heir of righteousness. Maybe I am there, I don't know. All right, this one will go a little bit faster, I promise. Um, But we're going to look at the second one as we continue through Hebrews. And this is uh, the champion of faith of Abraham. And Abraham, if you want to talk faith, not much to be said as far as the author of Hebrews pretty much said it all. He actually spent 10 times the amount of ink on Abraham than he does the rest of the people in this chapter. So obviously held to a high, high esteem. The reason I have this picture up here uh, is because it's kind of interesting that this was Time Magazine in 2002. And the reason this is here is because there are so many people that credit Abraham as their father. Um, God, God had to change his name actually to Abraham because he told him he was going to be the father of many nations. The Muslims, Christians, and Jews all claim him as their father. That's about 4 billion people. So if we have 7.9 billion people, that means one out of every two people claims Abraham to be their father. Uh, in the book of Sirach, 44:19, this is again in the Apocrypha. It says, Abraham was a great father of many people. In glory was there none like unto him. Genesis 17:5. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you father of many nations. So who are Abraham's children? Uh, I don't remember what part in Hebrew it was, but we had an entire Bible study talking about that, so I don't want to touch on all of that, but essentially, those who have faith. It's not the Muslims, and it's not the unbelieving Jews. Uh, Therefore, in Galatians uh, 3.7, Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. So if you are a believer, if you have faith in Christ, then you are a son of Abraham. But the Jews uh, did not accept this very much. It's something that they they put a lot of hope into their lineage, into their DNA. And in John 8, 3, they come at him and they say, well, Abraham is our father when he says, who's your father? And they answered, if you, or they answered, If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. Now, that's a a red-letter Bible right there. Jesus is telling you, if you want to be Abraham's children, if you want to be heirs according to the promise, then you're going to do what Abraham did. So I think it's important, then, to take some time and look at what Abraham did and understand why we're doing this. Because Jesus wasn't dumb. He knew that they were Jews, that they came from Abraham, but he's pointing out... It's not a matter of DNA. This is something that comes down to faith. So we'll dive into Hebrews uh, 11.8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Do you see here how faith is connected with obedience? You'll see that all the time. Faith and obedience. It's a two-step. That is the structure of the faith. Faith and obedience. Not not because you have to, but because you love him. Uh, So let's go back here and let's look a little bit at Abraham's DNA lineage and where Abraham come from. Abraham came from. In Genesis 11, 27, uh, this is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot, and Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur of the Chaldeans was Babylon, which would be up north. north. Yep. Uh, So basically, Abraham's lineage, where Abraham came from, was Babylon. In Revelation 18.4, we're going to do the same thing that Abraham did. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, Babylon, My people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. So his hometown was Babylon, and God called him out of there. Therefore, his children should do the exact same thing. So they came from Babylon. That is, that's where Terah, his father, that's where they they left out of. 
Jewish commentary believes that Abraham is the one because we know that Abraham had had a relationship with God when he was in Ur. They believe that Abraham was the one that told Terah that we need to move and we need to get out of here and go to Mesopotamia. There's nothing in scripture that says that. It just says that they, they left Ur the Chaldeans, but that's what the uh, historians believe. Joshua 24.2, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times. And this gets worse. Not only were they from Babylon, but they served other gods, worshiping demons, worshiping idols. Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, led him throughout all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. I actually read something kind of interesting that says that uh, this word served other idols can be translated a couple different ways, and they believe that Terah actually made idols. His job was to carve wooden idols and to, to, to create idols. I don't know if that's true, but that is what I, I read something on that. So um, They abandoned Judith. They abandoned the way of their ancestors to worship the God of heaven, the God they learnt to acknowledge, banished from the presence of their own gods. They fled to Mesopotamia where they lived for a long time. When God commanded them to leave their home and set out for Canaan, they settled there and accumulated gold and silver and great herds of cattle. Uh, what is being said here in Judith, this is actually the, uh, the, the king of Mesopotamia at the time. And so they, they moved to Mesopotamia. They are up in, in Haran. And then Abraham is actually called to leave Haran. And I, I'm going to get there in this next verse. But just acknowledging here, this is another, again, apocrypha. So it's not scripture, but it's backing up what scripture is telling us, that they left everything that they had to worship this God of heaven, the God they learned to acknowledge. One thing that they pointed out as far as the, the gods that they have, I thought was really interesting, that any other religion that you look at has a tangible idol or something that they have that they can see with their eyes, that they can touch, that they can bow to, that they can kneel to, something that they can put their faith in. But God calls us to do the exact opposite and do not have idols because of this very thing that we're studying right now, which is that we are to walk in faith that we're not to put our hope in these idols and, and create that golden calf. Uh, we are to have a God that we can't see and completely just trust him, that he's there. And that's exactly what Abraham did. So uh, they're living up in Haran. They left Babylon. They're living up in Haran. Um, and at this time in Genesis eleven twenty nine, then Abraham and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no children. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife. And they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So they did leave. Um, just scripture to back that up. This is where they're at. Uh, all the way at the top there, right there, is Babylon. They moved to the top there in Haran. And that is where Terah and his family, where Abraham's family basically moved to when they uh, left. But as we'll see here, not only did Abraham have to leave Babylon with his family, but now he's going to have to leave Haran, leave his father, leave his, um, his brother, leave his family completely, and go to the land of Canaan. The reason I have this map up here, though, is just to show you that when I, Abraham sends Isaac to go get uh, his daughter, or his daughter, to go get his wife, he's sending them back up to his family up into Haran. In Genesis 12:1, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. So Abraham is told now that he is already moved to Haran, that he's supposed to leave his family, get out of your father's house, so give up your inheritance, give up the land that you have, give up all of your possessions, and just leave. I'm going to show you where you're going to go. I'm not going to tell you where you're going to go, but I'm going to show you this land. 
walking by faith. Uh, this is from Philo of Alexandria. He was a Hellenistic Jewish philosopher living in Alexandria. Um, and this was his commentary on Abraham that <laughs> blows my mind. Because when Abraham was told to do this, well, let me just read this. He, being impressed by an oracle by which he was commanded to leave his country, so Philo is calling it an oracle. This was God that was telling him to do this. To leave his country and his kindred and his father's house and to emigrate like a man returning to a foreign land to his own country. And not like one who was about to set out from his own land to settle in a foreign district, hastened eagerly on, thinking to do with promptness what he was commanded to do was equivalent to perfecting the matter. So what Philo is saying here is that when Abraham was told to leave Haran, he wasn't thinking, oh man, I'm leaving my home to go to this foreign place. Abraham had so much faith in God that he viewed leaving where he was at as if he was going home because he knew that wherever God was calling him is home. God is our home, not wherever you're living right here, the comforts of what you have. And he left with promptness. When he was told to do that, he was so excited to walk in faith, to follow God, that he left immediately. And I couldn't do that. If God told me right now that Sierra and I are supposed to pick up everything we're doing and just leave, and he'll tell me where I'm supposed to go, and I would do it tomorrow, I would come up with a thousand excuses for why I need to pray about it for another week. But if we're to be disciples of Christ, this is how we're supposed to act, that promptness in faith. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So if you want to be a disciple, this is what it takes. And as I get to the end of this, you're going to see you're really going to want to be a disciple. Um, you're not just going to want to be a follower of Christ. There is, there's some meaning to being a disciple of Christ. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's a tough one to swallow. It's an easy one to read and say, yeah, I agree with that. But until it actually happens, that's a, that is a really tough ask. Luke 14, 33, Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. But this is exactly what Abraham did. So, I would pose the question to you, would you do it? If you were in that same position, is that something that you would do? Genesis 12.1 Now the Lord had said to Abraham, or Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. No idea where he's going whatsoever and is excited to do it. And says, yep, let's go. I'm ready to, I'm ready to head out. That's freedom. The ability for him to leave everything that he had and live in complete faith, that's freedom. I think about freedom as being I live in America and I get to do all I want with capitalism and I've got a nice job and all these comforts of home that I get to store up wealth here. That's my freedom. And don't trample on my freedom. That's not freedom at all. Freedom is living in faith so much that you're willing to give it all up at the drop of a hat just based on the word of God completely. You will never have freedom or joy when you try to cling on to the things of this world. You cannot have it. Um, and that's just that verse in Hebrews 11, that he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundation, whose builder and maker is God. This is where I was like, hold on one second. I get it. Whatever you left, er, great. And then you had faith enough to go and you entered into the promised land. He got his promise. Abraham was given this, but even when he got to the promised land, the land that God said, I'm going to show you where this is at. Here it is. I've given it to you. Even when he was there, Abraham said, this isn't home. This isn't the promise that you told me. Yeah, this is a great, this is the promised land here on earth, but that's not it. I'm, I'm a foreigner here. I live in tents, and I'm looking forward to the day when there's a city that God has created, heaven, that is going to come out of earth, 
and be in Jerusalem. That is the true promise. So he lived his entire life this way, knowing that he was in a foreign country. Uh, and that's something that I think I'm going to, I'm definitely going to take out of this, is just this idea that I'm not home. I'm not even close to it. There's no, there's no need to even make plans for how I'm going to live out the rest of my life and gather possessions if I, if I uh, have a heavenly mindset. He knew and waited for this promise to come to fruition. By faith, uh, we're just going to keep moving here in Hebrews. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand by which is, which is by the seashore. So when I first read that, I'm like, why is Sarah in here? Didn't she laugh at God and like... I, there's a lot of other women you can put in here. But when I was listening to Daniel Joseph's sermon on this, he said, go back and read Genesis 18. Because the Lord comes and he talks to Abraham, but Sarah doesn't laugh out loud. She laughs within herself. And I, I don't think any single person in here would hear that you're about to have a child if you're barren and not think to yourself, well, that's not, that's not going to happen. Or make some snarky comment in your head. It's one thing to, to say it out loud, but it's another when it's something in your head, in your, in your heart of hearts, to keep that from God. You can't do that. But she did not laugh out loud at him. It was, it was just in her head. And so I do think that's kind of interesting. But when she's told this, you know, she lies to him and says, I didn't laugh, even though that's not technically a lie. She did not laugh out loud. She laughed inside of herself. It says in Hebrews that she had the faith to strengthen herself and receive seed. And I'm going to get on a little soapbox here for a second. Not soapbox. I'm going to get up here and just tell you something that I've learned this year that I've found to be, to change my perspective on reading the Bible. And that's that up until I've started really studying these people, these heroes in this hall of fame of faith, I can tell you every single sin that these people have had. Uh, what's the sin of David? What's the sin of, of Moses? Yeah, striking the rock. We could go through all of these people, and I, I guarantee you somebody in here knows what it was that they did wrong. And I think it's because we want to, this is just for me personally, it's because we kind of want to put them on our level, right? We kind of want to make them human because we see all the great things that we're doing and we know that they have faith. And I've always been like, yeah, I want to be like Moses. And I want to be like David. And I want to be like Daniel. And so if I'm going to be like that, I have to make sure that I remember that they're sinners too, that they do these things. And after studying them, I can't touch these people. I'm not even close. They've got one sin recorded in the Bible, or they've got two sins recorded. In, and entire books talking about how, how much faith these people had. I don't have anything close to that. And I would, I like all of you guys, a lot, but I'm not putting any of you in scripture as far as the amount of faith that Noah had to do what he did or the amount of faith that Abraham had to do what he did. I don't know a single person that has that. So I look at those people now as no longer just kind of like somebody that I aspire to be or like a role model. I'm like, these guys are, they are what you need to strive for. Jesus, and you need to be looking at these people in the Bible and learn what they did because those are the people that are mentioned in the Bible that God says, I love these people. I give them these rewards, these blessings. They're heirs of righteousness. We are almost done. small side note about yes. Sarah. Uh, in many of the things, like Sarah's promises would have been probably relayed through Abraham. She wasn't mm -hmm. around when God gave the promise of Sarah having a baby to uh, Abraham. I mean, she heard the one, the one in the tent. Um, anyway. And so I just think that that's, as a wife, to have um, assurance, maybe? Like, to be submissive that my husband is hearing hmm. from the Lord takes on almost, I don't want to say more faith, it's not more faith, but a different type yeah. of faith to be, like... Because you're, you're getting it from a middleman. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I've always found that hmm. that is... Are you sure he said that to me? <laughs> <laughs> I've always found Sarah to be highly... Impressive to me yeah. for that reason. So. 
And that's... And she followed her husband and lived in tents forever. I have a completely newfound respect for anyone that is even listed in the Bible as being someone of faith that I just... Well, Abraham, think about the times that, that well, you follow the God of Abraham. The God of, for generation after generation after yeah. generation after generation was the God of Abraham. Yeah. You know, he was... I think George Washington mm-hmm. has been talked about a lot. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, these all died in faith, not having received the promises. And why did they not receive that promise, even though they lived in the promised land? Because they knew that that was not the promise that they had. They didn't hold on to the promise of, of what they were going to have here on earth. But they saw them far off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called out in mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So they had a chance to return at any time. Uh, If they wanted to declare a place that was their home, they could have done that. But they desired a better heavenly country. And I think God does that. Honestly, I think there are a lot of times where in our faith, um, I believe this isn't a salvation issue, but we get to a point where we're saved. Maybe we're strong in our faith for a couple years, and God blesses us, and he, he enriches us and says, if this is where you want to park out, so be it, if, as long as you're still loving me. But I don't want to do that. I want to continue to desire for something more, a, a heavenly promise, and not just things on earth. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, for which he also received him in figurative sense. And we talked about this as well, so I don't need to hit that. But when Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac, his faith was so strong that he knew something was going to happen. Either God was going to raise him from the dead, or he was going to provide some other way. He knew what was going to happen. Uh, I don't think that removed the emotional aspect of having to sacrifice your son by any means. But he had faith. By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing, and have, withheld, and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you, and multiply I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Why? Because you have obeyed my voice. Again, faith results in obedience. All of these things that we read here in Genesis 22 were said back in chapter 15. Go read chapter 15 of Genesis and it's that blessing is what he says. This is what I'm going to do for you. But he doesn't do it right away. He puts him through this test. And because he obeyed his voice and he listened to him, that is what he gets out of this. Same thing with Exodus. God, God brings them out of Egypt and says, I'm going to make you a land, fill you a land of milk and honey, but you're going to have to obey my voice. I'm going to send you, I'm going to give you this law that you're going to have to obey. And I'm going to test you through the wilderness and see if you're going to obey my voice. Genesis 26.4, And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. This is the structure of the faith. So when we saw back in there uh, that it says, when Jesus said, If you are Abraham's sons and daughters, then you will do as Abraham did. Go back to Genesis. This is what Abraham did. This is faith versus sacrificial obedience, and there's a big, big difference. Here's why. And this is like my new favorite verse in the Bible. James 2.21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. 
And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. That is, when I get to the end, that is all, that would be it for me. Just to be called a friend of God. Because, I love this, Jesus is a cagey, cagey person. He's secretive. Um, you know, he gave us this word. He gave us everything that we need right here. But it takes a lot of digging to find it. And he's not very plain and simple with how he, he tells us these things. But there are people in the Bible that God calls his friend, that he reveals himself to. Moses, when he said to the prophets and to the priests, I reveal myself through dreams and prophets and all that, but to Moses I speak plainly. That's because God and Moses were buddies. They were best friends. If you think about this in, in real terms, and I'm putting myself as Jesus in this, so just disregard that. But if I'm Jesus, and I meet somebody, and we hang out for three days, and that person calls me a friend, absolutely, I'm going to call that person a friend. But I'm not going to tell them everything about my life. I'm not going to share my secrets with them or spill my guts out to them. So in terms of, of faith, would I say that that person is saved if they confess to be a friend of Jesus and they give their life over and they have faith? Absolutely, friend of Jesus. But then I also have friends that I talk to every month that I'm pretty, pretty close with and I would call a true friend that I know I've got their number in my phone, can talk to them about random things, Husker football, call them a friend. And then I have people that I talk to, a select group of four or five people that I'll pretty much tell everything to. But not quite everything, but almost everything. And then I've got my wife that I don't keep anything from. I keep nothing from her. And I long to bless her. There's nothing that I will hold back from my wife. And that is exactly how Jesus is. And I, I just love that because that's how I want to be friends with Jesus. I don't just want to say I know Jesus and we're on a first name basis. I want to say that I am married to Christ to the point where he doesn't keep anything from me. He reveals his secrets to me because he, I'm his friend. That is why I do what I do and I obey him. It has nothing to do because he tells me to do it. It's because I love him. And friends want to spend time together. John 8. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. He knew that when Abraham got to heaven, that was where his promise was. Second Ezra's 3.13, when you chose Abraham, you loved him, and to him alone in the dead of night, you secretly disclosed how the world would end. Not scripture, you guys, but I believe that to be true, that Abraham knew the end of the earth. I believe that God spent time with Abraham and was like, do you want to know how it ends? And Abraham was like, yeah, I'd love to know how it ends. I'll tell you, I trust you. John 15, 14, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for servants do not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my father, I have made known to you. This is why you want to be a disciple of Christ. There were disciples that he sent out, the, was it 120? I forget what that number was. He sent out a lot of people. There was a lot of people that followed him, that gave their lives to Christ. But there were 12 people that he said, you guys are my friends. You're not my servants. I tell you everything. And that's what I want. Obedience is not legalism. It is friendship. Abraham knew Yeshua. And God revealed himself to Abraham because of it. This only happened because they were friends. And he knows your heart. That's not something you can hide. I can tell you guys how much I'm learning about God but he knew that Sarah was laughing in her heart. He knows your heart and where your heart's at if you really, truly long to be with him. So with that, before I cry, we're going to end. <laughs> Let's pray. Ah, oh, dear Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for this group of people that I do get to call friends, that we can gather around and we can talk about your word openly and freely as I think about how difficult it's going to be to, to move forward and to be strong and firm in my faith, I'm so blessed to have people that I can be around that encourage me, that lift me up, that energize me to keep going week in and week out, Lord. 
I pray that everyone here was blessed, that they got something out of this, not through me, but just through your spirit, that your spirit was pricking their conscience and and causing them to love you more and to find ways to just be your friend. Pray with for each and every person in this room as they go out this week, um, that everyone that they come into contact with would know that they are a Christian, whether it's through their actions or through their words, God, that um, even if it's just your Holy Spirit glowing so bright on them that people are blinded, whatever it takes, that they would be witnesses to those because the end is coming. And I just pray for that sense of urgency, Lord. Pray that you would be with my parents as they're traveling in Montana. Be with everyone else that's traveling. Be with those that are sick. God, we ask for healing uh, to come upon this nation. I pray that you would um, provide protection for those that you have sealed, for those that you have called, not to remove us from what is about to happen, but just for protection, God. And we long so much to be with you, uh, to have that tangible presence um, that we can be with, God. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We thank you so much, and we praise your holy and mighty name. In Yeshua's name, amen.